The following message is presented by Fellowship Bible Church from its weekly pulpit ministry. We offer an expositional study through entire books of the Bible, one verse, paragraph, or chapter at a time. We pray that you'll be blessed by listening in. Thanks for visiting. Thank you for for joining us tonight in our Bible study. Turn to Isaiah 53, please. Isaiah 53 and verse number 8. Isaiah 53 and verse number 8. A question uh, was posed to me about this portion of Scripture uh, some months back, and I dug through my list of things to go over, and this came up, so I selected to work on this for us. Uh, where it says in Isaiah 53, 8, And who will declare his generation? And uh, this is a tough portion of Scripture, I think, to understand properly. So I'd like to dig into that a little bit. Um, I, I'm going to frankly uh, use you folks as guinea pigs for my explanation to uh, see if I can uh, get it across. And that's, uh, that's my fault, not your fault. Uh, you never blame the guinea pig for a failed experiment. <laughs> he just bears the consequences of it, that's all. So... We have to uh, we have to make a make a, a go at it here. But you've read this chapter many times, I'm sure, and you've read uh, he was taken from prison and from judgment, and who will declare his generation? And I bet if you're like me or like many, you have skipped over that first half of verse eight, and you've said, "I don't quite know what to make of that," especially if you're reading in the King James or New King James version. But when you get to eight, I'll call it eight C. The uh, fourth uh, little stanza there, it says, For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people he was stricken. So your comfort level goes way up because you say, Aha, I know about that. I mean, I, I know that he was cut off, he was killed, and, and, and all of that. So let me just mention that briefly, and then we'll get to the harder part. So obviously... You know, our emphasis falls on that because it teaches that the servant was cut off from the land of the living. That is, he was killed, he died. It teaches us that the servant was stricken for the transgressions of my people, that is, Israel. In other words, he was cut off is he died. And for the transgressions of my people, we could say for our sins. He died for our sins. Very simple. So we like that. He was our substitute as the earlier part of the chapter makes very clear. In fact, if you look at it, it's just amazing what um, Isaiah does by the inspiration of God's Spirit um, in that. Now, if you if you go back to the even the beginning of the chapter in Isaiah 53, you're going to see a, a kind of interesting phenomena, I think, that you might not have noticed. I didn't notice for many years. It says, Who has believed our report and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of a dry ground. So, sounds like it's uh, future looking, okay? He, he's going to come. And then it says, He has no form nor comeliness, and when we see him, there's no beauty that we should desire him. So now it looks like a present tense. We're looking at him, the servant Messiah, and we're not desiring him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised. So it's almost odd that we've moved from the future tense to the present tense to the past, the way it's presented here in this text. And it's almost as if we're looking back in a retrospective way. Now, some might say it's a prophetic past. It's 
It's a past tense written because it's going to occur and it's so sure to occur that we can say it as if it's past tense. Like Romans chapter 8, you've been called and, and, and justified and ultimately glorified past, but you haven't been glorified yet. You know, you know that, I know that. And so it's as if it's done, but it's not quite yet done. It's as good as done. Well, it could be that, but I think it's a retrospective here where the author and the people together are portrayed portrayed as looking back on these great events. And they're saying, our report, our faces we hid, our, he carried our griefs, he carried our sorrows, he was stricken for our transgressions, for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. We see, all, you know, altogether the prophet and the people are saying, look, this stuff happened. We observed it. Uh, he was oppressed. He was afflicted. He opened not his mouth. He's looking at it like it's all past tense. And uh, quite interesting, I think, that that's the case. But all of that makes clear that, that we're talking about a Messiah who is our substitute. Think about it. Verse 4, He has borne whose griefs? Ours. Whose sorrows? Ours. Whose transgressions? Verse 5, ours. Whose iniquities? Ours. Who's, 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 for who was our, you know, the chastisement was upon Him for what? For our peace. So, He gave Himself for us. And I think if you think about it this way, you have the heavy realization that people, the people of Israel and their prophet are looking back and saying, that happened to him because of us. And I think that is the answer to, or the explanation, if you will, of how it is in Zechariah. They're going to look upon him whom they pierced. And they're going to mourn for him as one mourns for an only son who has perished. You think of that. They are going to be filled with such grief because they recognize my sin put him there. Well-placed grief, I think, but it's still poignant for us to think about in Isaiah 53. But what does it mean when it says he was taken from prison and from judgment and who will declare his generation? I looked at the MacArthur Study Bible and uh, he conveniently does not have a note on this part of the verse. <laughs> I'm like, man, you know, too bad. But that goes to show you the difficulty of this verse, that there's something going on here. And so we're going to dig into that. The first phrase I think is easier than the second one. And so what I did basically was I took each phrase, he was taken and then he and who will declare, and I wrote out the Hebrew text for that. And I start analyzing the Hebrew text little by little, and I want to take you through that. Okay, I'm not going to be teaching you Hebrew tonight, um, but I'm going to be giving you some details. So this is the guinea pig part, okay? So, he was taken from prison and from judgment. It doesn't seem that Jesus was taken out of a prison or taken away from judgment. In fact, it seems like he was sent to bad things like that and not taken from them. Um, there's something else going on here and it turns out that it's a translation issue. The King James and New King James, which follows it, 
uh, share a certain kind of translation, and probably the New King James retained the old for purposes of familiarity. Sometimes, unfortunately, they would do that with passages. They would say, well, everybody's memorized it in the King James. They're so familiar with it, we have to keep it the same. In this case, a big mistake, I think, because it it uh, really kind of covers the meaning of the text. The first Hebrew word in the text is uh, a, a two-part word. It's got a prefix to it. And it's the prefix uh, min, or from, or some of, or by reason of. And then it's attached to the word oppression. And so really we should translate it as through oppression. Through oppression. Psalm 107.39 has another use of that very same word. I'll just read it quickly for you. Psalm 107.39. Uh, 38, I'll start it. He also blesses them and they multiply greatly and He does not let their cattle decrease. When they are diminished and brought low through oppression, through oppression, affliction, and sorrow. This phrase then indicates something has happened to them and it's the means by which it happened. They were brought low by the means of oppression, by the means of sorrow. Why? Because God allowed them to be punished for their sin. Okay, So He used, say, the oppression of the Midianites, the oppression of the Philistines to bring them low. So it was through oppression that this happened. Uh, Along with misery and sorrow and suffering, the people were brought low. So these events came upon the nation because of their idolatries and other sins. So through oppression. And then there's the second Hebrew word, which is another combination word. Actually, this is... Uh, we have to translate it as three English words. And, the little particle at the beginning of the word is an and, from judgment. The same prefix. So it's, it's uh, you know, from oppression or through oppression. Through oppression and through judgment. Okay? Mishpat, judgment. A very common word in Hebrew. Uh, it's a judicial kind of word. By reason of judgment, the next phrase or the verbal idea occurred. And what, what is that verbal idea? So uh, it says there in 53.8, through oppression and through judgment, he was taken. The last word in the phrase is he was taken, not the first word as you have it in your English translation there, uh, at least if you have the New King James. And so it's the word for grasped, or seized. It's not that the subject of the verb took something, it's that he was taken. Okay, it's a passive verb. He was taken. That's the form of it. Okay, make sure you understand that. He didn't take something, he was taken. So it's not that the Messiah was taken away from those bad things. Are you with me so far? He did not escape those bad things, it's just the reverse, actually. Those bad things caused him to be taken away. So read it this way. Through oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Through oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Or by reason of oppression and judgment, he was taken away. The NIV, the New American Standard, ESV, CSB, and NET all have improved the translation. They've made much better sense of it. 
than the King James and New King James. So if you've memorized, he was taken from prison and judgment, you need to change that. I really encourage you. It's through oppression and judgment. Through oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Something like that. Or memorize it from one of the other translations. Rendering it dynamically, we could say this. Now, this is powerful, okay? Through utter injustice, he was taken away. Through utter injustice, he was taken away. Prison and judgment, or oppression and misjustice, if you will, injustice. When this prophecy was fulfilled, Jesus was unjustly arrested, unjustly tried in several courtrooms, mocked, scorned, spit upon, and sentenced to a a very unusual punishment or cruel punishment on the cross. Sentenced to die because of his identity in the place of a murderous insurrectionist named Barabbas. Remember? What... More injustice could you think of? A perfect man sentenced to die by a bunch of wicked, evil losers. Okay? The Son of God crucified, not for any crime that He had done. In fact, it was for crimes that I had done that He hung upon the tree. For crimes that I had done that He hung upon that cruel It was a terrible injustice on the human level. And that is what the text is saying. He wasn't taken away from those things. Those things pushed him toward death. Injustice, cruelty, oppression pushed him to the point of death on the cross. He was unjustly seized, unjustly grasped, unjustly taken away. There was no cause in Him for what happened, but God used it for good. So this phrase then, He was taken from prison and from judgment, is all about the unjust treatment of our Lord and Savior. The innocent was oppressed by a bad society and a bad judicial system. He did not deserve what He was given. We did. If those things happened to us for our transgressions, it would have been just. But happening to Him, it was unjust. You see the difference? Of course, now, it would have been just only in the eyes of God. And still, in human, in human jurisprudence, it would have been an unjust proceedings, an unjust method, no matter who was put through it. You understand my point, though, I think. Then the second phrase, the one that's of the most trouble, is who will declare his generation? The Hebrew text reads very literally this way. And his generation who will declare or who will consider or who will meditate. And his generation, who will declare? As for his generation, who has considered it? The translation is is not as bad here in the New King James. It's not reversed like the first phrase. Okay, Remember I told you the first phrase in the King James and New King James needs to be turned around to be correct to the Hebrew and to the theology of the matter. This phrase is not so messed up, but it's still a head-scratcher as to what it means, isn't it? What does it mean? If I were to ask you on a quiz just now, what does it mean 
And who will declare his generation? What would you answer? The question is rhetorical. What do you think the answer to the question is? There are verbal parallels there. I'm not convinced of the of the parallel in meaning myself on that. Uh, ben has commented using Psalm 22:13 um, and Isaiah 53:10 about a seed. But my question still remains: What is it when it says His generation? Uh, who will declare it? What is the answer to that question? Who will declare His generation? It is a question, right? Are you with me? The question is, who is going to do that? What's the answer to that? In the context of the author's writing here. Who will declare his generation? I I think the answer is no one. Why? Because the text says he was cut off from the land of the living. There's no one to... Do it. So I think it's a rhetorical question. The answer is no one considered or declared his generation. The text marks the word his generation to function as a direct object. Okay, so in the Hebrew text, this looks to me to be almost certainly a direct object. What does that mean? It doesn't mean he's telling that this person is telling something to the generation. It means that his generation is the thing that is being, well, not declared. His generation is not being declared. Okay, now this I know it's it's tough. We're we're kind of uh, you know running to the limits of our brain cells here, but we have to think now. We have to think, 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 think. What is this? It's not that someone is telling something to the generation of Jesus, but or the Messiah, but telling of or about his generation. But the precise nature of that has a question mark next to it. In fact, in the Hebrew dictionary, the Hebrew Aramaic lexicon of the Old Testament, the premier Hebrew dictionary, it has Isaiah 53.8 and then it has a question mark. They don't know what to do with it. It is very puzzling. I spent several hours thinking about this. There are two suggestions in that dictionary. Who will tell of his fate? And I think the CSB, the Christian Standard Bible, has that. I'm not sure if I remember that right. Uh, or who will tell his contemporaries? So they translate the word generation as fate or as contemporaries. 
Now, you know, that's, that's tough, but uh, there are reasons why that is from the Akkadian and Arabic cognate languages. Let me finish. Yeah, thank you. Um, so, it's the word door in Hebrew, the word generation, D-O-R, and it's a common word. Um, but before we get there, you have the second word of the sentence, uh, who. So, his generation, who, and then the last word, who will declare. It has a flavor of considering or meditating or musing. It could mean narrate or consider or instruct about something. So there are several variations of this. Who will tell of his fate? Some say. Who will tell of his fate? The word fate doesn't quite fit the word for generation as far as I'm concerned. Uh, another translation. Who will tell his contemporaries? Now this doesn't fit either because it's not who will tell to his generation. It was, it's who will tell of or about his generation. So that doesn't seem to fit either. I mean, we could make sense of it that way, but it just doesn't, it's not working with the Hebrew text the way that it marks it as a direct object. Some have said it's who can speak of his descendants. That is, he left no family behind, and that in, in Hebrew thought is a terrible, terrible curse. But Jesus was never going to have a physical family anyway. You know that, right? Because. His descendants, if he had children, would somehow be considered special and revered and honored and worshipped and all that. Oh, these are the these are the sons of the Son of God, you know, in the family line, and they're so you know just perfect and angelic and whatever, whatever it is. Um, but he never married; he did not have children. Therefore, um, and I think this is close to the best translation about his descendants. But I'll explain how that is. It's it's got a problem in the way you just think of it physically. Who of his, in other words, translation, who of his generation considered? And some have made sense of this as well. You know, there's no sympathy for him. He was mocked. Most people walked by the cross and wagged their heads at him. But this doesn't, you know, I mean, this does well with the verb for consider, but considering of his generation changes generation from being a direct object to modifying the subject. That doesn't work. You can't just do that. Okay, all you grammarians out there, don't take the direct objects and make them modifiers to the subject, okay? It doesn't usually work, if at all. Now, Genesis has a similar phrase, which I think gives a little bit of a clue. It's in uh, Genesis 6, verse uh, 9, I believe it is. I didn't write it down, in fact. I just kept it in my head here. I should have written it down for my notes' sake. Genesis 6 and verse number 9. This is the genealogy, the Toledot of Noah. Noah was a just man, perfect in his generations. Noah walked with God. Now, this speaks of his contemporaries, his generations, his, his life amongst all those who were living at the time. It's a collective noun is called in grammar or a corporate sense. So when you talk about generation, you talk about like everybody alive today. That's a big word. I mean, it's a single word, but it encompasses a lot of people all at once. The generation, the current generation, 7.7 billion people on the earth. Or you could say, you know, Generation X or the millennials or whatever. Millions and millions of people comprehended under that single term. He was perfect during his lifetime 
in the lifetimes of his contemporaries, contrary to some of his comrades. Uh, Psalm 112.2 has a similar ring to it. It says, The generation of the upright will be blessed. This speaks of the life and particularly of the descendancy or posterity of the upright. Think of it that way. The, 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 the posterity of the upright will be blessed. I think there's a, a lot of great truth there. The, the, you have a godly heritage. That's a great thing. And you will be blessed down the line because of that, if, especially if you stick with it. The text in Genesis has the word uh, toledot, as I mentioned. It's a key word that indicates a lineage or a family line or a record. This is the record of Noah, the record of the family of Noah. It speaks about a group of people bound together by some common thing, which uh, you know could be in, in the time they live, that's the commonality, or it could be they have a common ancestor like Noah, in fact, if you look at the book of Genesis, it's divided up in, I think, ten sections, each marked by the word Toledot. There's the generations of Adam, and then there's Noah, and, and you've come to uh, Joseph, or Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and then Joseph. But you look at that sometime. It's divided up that way into those ten segments based on the word Toledot. Um, so it's something in common, this Toledot, this generation, this, this uh, group of people. Um, the generation of the righteous are those who are characterized by righteousness. They don't have uh, the same ancestor. They might not even live at the same time or the same generation as we call it, but the generation of the righteous are those who are sharing that common characteristic of righteousness. So obviously this phrase is something of what we call an idiom. An idiom is a special phrase in the Hebrew language and culture. And I think the best way to understand it from, from what I'm gathering thus far is to understand that the Messiah was taken out unjustly and there was no one who considered or declared his posterity or his line. They should have at the time concerned themselves with the physical lineage of this man. Remember, he was a man. Perfect man, of course. This guy has no heirs, no children. His name will be cut off from the earth. And you Pharisees are going to wipe him out. This is a major consideration when you sentence somebody to death. What, what do you just do to all the people that would come out of him? They're gone. They, they, they don't come into existence anymore. You have to realize that is a very serious charge. Or sentence, rather. You sentence somebody to death. You cut them off. You sentence an entire body of people to non-existence. His whole generation, his whole posterity... It disappears. Who's going to advocate for those people? Who's going, to, who's going to consider them? Now, of course, Jesus was not going to have a physical lineage. right? We said that before. So the real descendancy of Christ are His spiritual children, those who do the will of God. Matthew 12.50, remember? He said, your mothers and your brothers are outside waiting, you know, wanting to see you. No, my mother, mothers and father and brother are those that do the... You know, do the will of God. But the emphasis in the text is not on the physical or spiritual nature of the line. The emphasis is on the fact that there was nobody who stood up for him or his line. Everybody left him. There was no one who, who took thought or care for his posterity, whatever that might be. The Sanhedrin certainly didn't. They condemned him without regard for his posterity. They didn't know that he was not going to have a family. They just got rid of him. 
He was expendable in all the line of people that came from him, even though he hadn't committed murder. He hadn't committed a crime that they could, you know, really get him on as far as a crime that was, you know, a capital offense in the Jewish system. And so, who will declare his generation? No one considered or or declared his posterity or his line, and they should have. So, let's go back and just read again. Isaiah 53, verse 8. He was taken from prison and judgment means that by oppression and injustice, or by oppression and judgment, he was taken away, he was seized. And who was there that was going to advocate for him and his generation? Nobody. No one. He's left alone. The sheep. The shepherd is stricken and the sheep are scattered and there is no one to declare for Him. Why? Because He was cut off from the land of the living for the transgressions of My people. He was stricken. So that's a bit of a difficult passage, but I hope that at least thinking about it has been profitable for you. Who will declare His posterity? His line, His lineage. Who will be an advocate for them? Yes. Yeah, it's quoted in Acts chapter 8. My translation of the Hebrew text. Yeah. Um, yeah, it says in Acts eight thirty three, in his humiliation, his justice was taken away. Okay, and who will declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. So the first phrase, they, they certainly, the, the, the LXX, it's called the Septuagint, the, or Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew, has a better take on that than what our English translators have done. And Ben's comment, if you, you couldn't hear that, some of you, um, was having to do with, you've got to go look at that. Uh, translation. It gives you some value because it's a Greek translation of the Old Testament. And if you look at that, it'll give you some guidance as to how Isaiah was understood ages ago. Ages ago. And translators today have this kind of idea. It's very strange. 
You see it most pointedly in Isaiah 7.14 when they translate the word Betula or Alma. Uh, I can't remember which one it is there, but it's clearly virgin. The virgin shall be with child. And it's clearly interpreted that way in the New Testament. You don't have to go any farther than that or go into some scholarly study about this word and blah, blah, blah. You understand that it's being used to refer to the miracle of a virgin giving birth to a child. And they want to translate it instead, the, the liberal translators, as what? A young woman will be with child. What's so miraculous about that? Nothing. <laughs> okay. So, um, yeah, there, that's a very important point that you're not, they're not using Scripture to help them translate Scripture. We're supposed to use Scripture to help us interpret Scripture. And here I'm using it to help me translate again so that we get the right translation. But obviously most of our activities in the interpretation section, not translation, because you guys aren't, you know, reading Hebrew all over the place. So, yeah, anyway, let's have a prayer. Father, thank you for tonight. I pray your blessing on what we have studied and that it will help us and help me to bring an even more clear um, understanding, translation, and explanation of this passage the next time that I uh, study it and look at it and able to share it with somebody so that uh, it will be very clear to all what this means. We know you've written Scripture to be understood, not to, be, not to hide things. But we do admit, like Peter, that some of the things that are written are, are difficult and we need a lot more work to try to come to an understanding of them and not just work, but prayer. And Lord, I prayed about this and I pray that it's been helpful and I pray you can still help us further. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, that brings us to the end of our service tonight. Thank you for hanging on so patiently and all of that. Pray that God will bless you and keep you. Good night.